I was tense. I was nervous. And if I could be really honest with you, I was not a little scared. I was sitting in my brother's family room with three of my siblings. And I was the center of the storm. Now, as you know, when storms happen in family, there's often a number of ingredients. Let me just bring you into the ingredients in my storm. The first was pretty simple, just misunderstanding. What family doesn't have some misunderstandings from time to time? But it went beyond misunderstandings. It then went into some differences. Differences of opinions. Differences of values. Differences of priorities. That probably would have been enough. But let's add a little bit more. There was now conflict. No, let's use the word chaos over how I led the family in family celebrations, Christmases, weddings, holidays, and the list goes on. And then, if that's not enough, let's just throw in some sin. Right? Just good old-fashioned sin that stirs the whole pot that made this situation go. Now, you know that I'm in a large family, grew up in a large family. So when I have three of my siblings, the four of us sitting there, and I'm the center of the storm, you can see why I'm a little tense, a little nervous, and not a little fearful. Now, my tendency may be like yours. It's either one of two. I either want to fight or flight, as they say. I either want to go after the jugular or I want to run. But I wonder if God has a better way. And that day, God gave me a better way. Doesn't always happen, but that day, God gave me a better way. I want to give you that way because God's wanting you to have the better way. If you have your Bible, if you have a device, it's always good to have the Word of God like right in front of you because sometimes you're like, now what did he say? Well, it doesn't matter always what I say, it's what God says, right? <laughs> it's what he's got to say to us today. If you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand? We're in Romans 8. We're going to pick up in verse 31 and just follow along as I read. Verse 31, chapter 8. The Apostle Paul writes this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors than through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, what an amazing word you are speaking. You're speaking it now. You've been speaking it for 2,000 years. But just because you're speaking doesn't mean we're listening. So God, we ask today, would you help us to listen to these words that are so powerful, whether it's a family conflict, a work conflict, a neighborhood, a situation. God, you, you want to speak in our hearts in a way that we can hear. Help us to hear. And God, we also just want to continue to pray for the situation in Ukraine. We continue to pray for a resolution. We pray that the conflict would end. God, you would show your power. God, thank you that you're in control. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, God. We just got to confess that. Sometimes it feels like this world is topsy-turvy and it could just tip over. But God, we know, based on what we just read, you are in control. Thank you for that. We pray for those people. We pray for the women and children that are fleeing. We ask for protection for them. And God, as more reports came out this week of the atrocities committed against these women and young girls, God, we pray for your further protection. God, bring an end to this. Stop the conflict, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab a seat. So as we look at this, you see there's a number of questions, and it's actually these five questions that I want to drive home this morning. But before I get into the first question, it begins with this idea of these things. In verse 31, Paul just says, you know, what should we say about these things? Well, what are the these things? Well, if you just look at the immediate section, it's probably just going to go back to verses 28, 29, and 30. But probably what Paul is doing here is he's wrapping up this larger section from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 8. And what he's wrapping up is that we can have a security, a confidence in God and in what God is doing. So we can see this hope that comes, as we've said periodically, in the gospel, in the good news, that God is a God who loves people. He's constantly calling people into relationship. He is showing the world what he wants to do for them. That's the gospel, right? Bringing it through Jesus Christ, that if people would put their trust in Christ, they would be delivered from the wrath of God. They'd be freed from their sin. They'd be living with a hope in the big things that God is doing. So I think the, these things is wrapped up in chapters 5 to 8. But clearly, Paul also tried to summarize it in verses 28, 29, and 30 when he said, the God who foreknew us, or as I said last week, the God who foreloved us. That's a relational term. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. And then he glorified us. Significantly, it's all in the past tense because what God has done or will do 
is as if it's happened because what God says will happen. He's not like us where we change our minds, where we're fickle, or we don't follow through on our words. So you can throw it all into the past tense that we know that one day this world will come to an end and we will be face to face with our living Christ and we'll be able to enjoy him forever. So with that as a backdrop, we then get into the five questions. Here's the first one, and it comes right out of verse 31. Who or what can be against us? Now, certainly as you read it in the scriptures there, it says who. But as you'll see as we go through the whole passage, it's not only a who, it's a what. It's the situations, it's the environment, it's the world, or more narrowly, the who. Who can be against us? And the obvious answer we begin to see is, is no one. So as I look at my family conflict, I'm sitting there in the room knowing that it's three against one, feeling like there is a serious issue that I need to address. And I ask myself, now who can be against me? Well, if we read it carefully, look what it says. It makes it clear that God is for us. The one who foreknew, the one who predestined, the one who called, the one who justified, the one who glorified, he is for us. Now that's a beautiful thought. Think about this. If there's anyone in your corner, it's God. That's a good person to have in your corner. So as I'm sitting in that family room, all of a sudden it's coming to mind. Now you can say, well, you know, how does that happen? I don't know how it happened. I'm just going to say God is for me. And if I needed a scripture to come to mind, he's going to bring it to mind. He brought it to mind. And all of a sudden that, that tension, that nervousness, that fear that was there began to dissipate. It began to weaken. It began to have less pull on me because I knew for that moment God is for me. Now, if that is true, think about the flip side. Could you imagine if God was against you? Whoa. So I just thought, I'm going to run that through my Bible program. God against you, and pops up. What a terrible situation. So in Nahum chapter 2, God is against Assyria and Nineveh, the capital. Listen to what God says. He says to, to the people, he says, behold, that means listen up, you don't want to miss this, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then he says, I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. All your young soldiers, if God is against you, watch out. Things are going to come against you. You may not feel it right now. You may not even recognize it right now. But there is coming a day for those that don't know Christ where it's going to be clear that God is against them. Jeremiah chapter 50. Listen to this. This is against Babylon. Jeremiah writes this. For the Lord, because the Lord says, behold, I am against you. Notice that word behold. Like it's this word that says, look, look, don't miss this. Meditate for at least a moment. He goes, I am against you. And look how he describes Babylon. Oh, proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time 
when I will punish you. If God is against you, that's not a good place to be. Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 3, God is against Egypt. And he says, behold, I am against you. Listen to what he says. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, it says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Can you imagine? That's just people saying, this house is mine. This car I drive is mine. These clothes I wear are mine. This money in my account is mine, right? It's mine. And what God has said, behold, listen up. Is the Nile really the pharaohs? (laughs) We can lose our place, can't we, in the world? We forget that he's the creator and we are the created ones. And so God says, I'm against you. Pharaoh says, I made it for myself, his whole kingdom. And God is like, really? (laughs) Those are people that were enemies against God. But I was struck in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 8. This is what the Lord says to his own people because they had rebelled against him. Because they were now turning away and going against his plan. He says, behold, I. And then he so personalizes it. Even I. I am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst, in the sight of the nations. Why does God give us a word like this? I think he gives it to us Christians to just give us pause, to reflect, to identify, have I put my trust in Jesus Christ or am I just going through the motions? Am I just showing up at church and it's a thing to check off or is it really a relationship with the living God, the true God, the only God? And he's bringing us to a place to examine that. That's what he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. It's not that we're to constantly be questioning. It's that what are we ultimately trusting in? It's not a bad question to ask. Because if you have not put your trust in Christ, ultimately God is going to be pulling against you. And what we want is as we trust Christ, we're in this place of God is for us. Well, let's hit the second question. It's in the very next verse, verse 32. Will God not graciously give us all things? Will God not graciously give us all things? What a great question, right? It just lays out there. God is so good. We just sang, God is so good. And the blessings of God. So it got me thinking about intimacy with God and how much We all want intimacy with God, don't we? We want to be connected to Him. But let me ask you a question. How do you measure intimacy with God? How do you measure it? I wrote down a couple things that I think I've used in the past that are just myths. They're just wrong. And they've misled me. Here was one. Intimacy with God is primarily about what He'll do for me. 
And so if my life is going well, smooth, no conflict, I'm intimate with God. If life is in rough waters, there's turmoil, there's conflict, I'm in a family room with issues, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, is God with me? Is there intimacy? Here was another one I wrote down. Intimacy with God is about an informal buddy-buddy relationship. Like somehow I forget that God is God and he's just another buddy. And I've got buddies and God is just one of them in the circle. And I measure it like that. If I feel connected with my buddies, we have good conversations. But I don't feel connected with my buddies if there's turmoil, if there's conflict, if stuff's going on. But I've just so weakened who God is. He's no longer the transcendent creator. Here's a third I wrote down. Intimacy with God can be managed. You know what I mean by managed. It's a tit for tat. If I go to church, God owes me. If I'm in a small group, God owes me. If I'm serving, I get the gold star. And God is with me. Right? And I measure intimacy in a tit for tat kind of way. Hey God, I'm doing my part. I'm showing up. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. But let's face it, all of us here, if you're going to be honest, will say from time to time, I don't feel intimate with God. I don't feel close. I don't feel really connected. I don't feel like God hears my prayers. So the question is out there. Will, not, will God not graciously give us all things? But let's look again how God answers that. He says to look at the cross. Verse 32, right at the beginning. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Intimacy with God starts with the cross of Jesus Christ. We got to point to the cross. So what God is telling us is that God gave us his son. The ultimate gift. There's no greater gift because it removed our sin. It removed the barrier. It removed everything that would be in the way of intimacy with God. And that's what he's wanting us to know is that God already gave us his son, which means we have life inside of us. Eternal life. We have freedom. We're no longer under the power of sin. We can put ourselves under the power of sin, but we don't have to put ourselves under the power of sin. And we have peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God. When you have peace with God, you're at peace with things. So all of a sudden in that family room, there was just a peace. I didn't have to run. And I didn't have to defend myself. I didn't have to start fighting. And I didn't have to take off like I didn't make mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes. 
but God gave me a son. And I was freed up. I was freed up to engage in a meaningful relationship without being defensive, without arguing, saying, I can see what you're saying. I, I, I get it now. I really messed up over here. Will you forgive me? Well, why could I ask for forgiveness? Because I had been forgiven of so much by my Lord. And so for others to forgive me, and then for me to forgive them, so it opened up. So as I think about the myths of intimacy, the, 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 the wrong way of viewing it, I wrote down two things that have helped me with intimacy with God. Here's the first one. Intimacy with God is primarily about embracing the transcendent God by faith and looking at the cross. Intimacy with God is about faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. What He did for me. He has already done for me more than I could ever imagine. If God never gave me another good gift the rest of my life, I would be eternally grateful for Jesus Christ. You understand what I'm saying? If God never gave me another sunshine day, if God never gave me another day of calm in this world, if God never gave me, and just fill in the blank, He's already given me everything I could possibly want or possibly need in Jesus Christ. That is a profound truth. But here's the other part. Intimacy within God involves a surrendered, humbled heart. It's, it's a relationship that leads to worship and serving in His kingdom regardless of the goodies. We joke around sometimes, you know, you say, my job is only to do or die, right? Well, there's a sense in which we just surrender in this relationship with God, knowing who He is. And that's where the, He's telling us that God has graciously given us all these things. Well, let's hit the third question, verse 33. Who will bring, or what, can bring a charge against God's elect? Right now you feel like you're in a, in a, in a court of law. Who can bring an accusation? Now, why do I put a what? Because we can be in environments where we feel like we're being condemned, where we're being challenged. It's not always like a, a singular person. And especially by the end of the chapter, Paul is linking together all kinds of situations. So we can say who or what can say you are condemned. You're wrong. I'm accusing you. And God makes it really clear. Look how he answers right? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. He's the one. <laughs> this is amazing. With all the mess in our lives, all the sin, all the crazy, he looks at you and he says, I declare you righteous. That's what justifies means. So when God looks at you and I tell you, Psalm 17 says, you are the apple of God's eye. That's not like just words. God looks at you and he says, because of what Jesus Christ has done, you are declared righteous and I love you and I love you. And there is an intimacy of that love that is different 
than he has for others that have never put their trust in Christ. Doesn't mean he doesn't love them. Let me be really clear. God so loved the world. But what the Bible makes clear is that there is an intimate type of love that's very unique, very directed for those that are his children. And God is our judge. So ultimately, when I'm in a mess, I know that I have to stand before really one person ultimately. It doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean I can't be humble and own my crazy stuff. But ultimately, I stand before God who is my judge. So what God says to me, all charges against you, Tom, are dismissed. Wow! Can you see how freeing that is when you're in a conflict? All of a sudden, what really matters is what God says about me. And that's what God wants us to know. Let's hit the fourth question. It comes out of verse 34. Who is to condemn? Who or what can condemn us? And then God just lays it out. He answers it in four separate ways. Jesus died for us. Isn't that what he said? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He's the one who removed God's wrath from us. It's then Jesus was raised to show what? That he conquered sin and death. He conquered my sin. He destroyed death for me so that I would live forever with him. And guess what? If you've trusted Christ, he's done the same thing for you. His resurrection, his resurrection, as we celebrated a couple weeks ago, is demonstrative proof that he conquered sin and destroyed death. Look where it says he's at the right hand of God. You know why he's there? It's the place of authority. It's the place. And, and I love the way the writer of Hebrews says, God, Jesus sat down at the right hand. You know why you sit down? Because it's over He's resting. The battle has been won. And so we find out in just a couple verses that we're overwhelmingly conquerors. But let's not get too far ahead because look what he says here. Jesus is indeed interceding for us. The next time you're in a conflict, Next time you've got stuff coming down on top of you, I want you to remember the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 26, the Holy Spirit is praying for you. And according to the verse we just read, Jesus Christ is interceding for you. Wow! When you feel like you're sinking, when you feel like there's no hope, when you feel like no things can change, what you need to know is that Jesus is praying for you in that moment. He's the high priest. It's crazy to think about it. Well, let's hit the last question because he just drills down deeper and deeper. Who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? Who or what? And then he just makes this huge list. Well, let's break out the list. Listen to what he says. He says, so tribulation or distress or persecution. Well, that's just a hostile world. We all have hostilities around us. Sometimes they come from family members. Sometimes they come from neighbors. Sometimes they come from coworkers. And can you believe this? 
Not to be too facetious. They come from people in the church. Sometimes there's hostilities. Can that separate you from the love of Christ? See, sometimes we measure our intimacy with how we feel. And if we base it on our feelings, who knows where that's going to take us? Because we can feel all kinds of things. He goes into famine or nakedness. And I just wrote down lacking material things. Can that separate me from the love of Christ? God, if you really loved me, I'd have more money in my checking account. God, if you really cared, I'd have a bigger house, a nicer car. Right? I mean, all the things the world uses to measure. God, my family would be intact. My family wouldn't have been splintered by divorce. God, if you really loved me, but nothing can separate us. Martyrdom, when he talks about danger or sword. And then remember, verse 36, it says, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Remember, we've been wedding from Romans chapter 8, verse 18, all the way to now, we've been wedding together, suffering and glory. I wish I could stand up here today, as some pastors have done, very erroneously, and said that there's no suffering in this world and God doesn't intend suffering. Let me tell you, again, because I don't want any of us to forget, hardwired into this universe, baked into the bread of this universe is suffering. Our Savior suffered to get us to glory and we're going to suffer as well. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trial. So we need to be clear that we are like sheep being slaughtered. But then look at verse 37. In all these things, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, we are more than conquerors. You have already one. You are a conqueror. And I love the way John writes it in 1 John. He says, we are overcomers. You got an addiction? Guess what? You're an overcomer. You've been battled down by some sin? You're an overcomer, according to what the Scriptures say. Nothing can separate us. So when I ask the question, how are we to endure in this world? How are we to survive in the midst of conflict? We have to live in the security and comfort of God's perfect love. And that's what Paul's trying to do through the power of the Holy Spirit, raising five questions. Can anything separate us from God's love? No. Will God hold back anything so that you can live well in Him? No. Can anyone bring a charge against you? No. Can anyone condemn you? No. The last question, can anything separate you from the love of Christ? No. Let me just read verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ. Jesus our Lord. That is an amazing hope, regardless of how it feels in this world. Now this morning, 
we want to take the Lord's Supper together. And this is just a good place to be. So when you came in, you should have received a little cup. If you didn't, could you raise your hand and uh, our servers will get you. Uh, We need one up here. Gary, up, up here. God wants us to know his intimacy. He wants us to experience his intimacy. And that's why we point to the cross, what Jesus did for us. And so, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the, cup, or took the bread and he said, this is my body. It's a picture of us in unity. It's a picture of us holding together by the power of Jesus Christ. And so his body would be broken so that he could bring us together. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, but he gave thanks. And he said, as often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, It took the shedding of blood to find forgiveness of our sins. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup. In the Lord's Supper, there's four cups. Or in in the Passover meal, there's four cups. We celebrate in the Lord's Supper the third cup, the cup of redemption. Jesus said something that night to his disciples. He said, I'm not going to drink the fourth cup until until we're all back with him in heaven. That's a hope and a promise that there's a supper to be had with Jesus Christ where we'll share the fourth cup. But what God wants for us to know this morning is that we're drinking the third cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of forgiveness in Christ, and that he shed his blood for us. So as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of him. Let's take it together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that grace is so free that it washes over us this grace is just so amazing we didn't deserve it we can't earn it it just washes over us and we receive it by faith and by receiving it by faith it brings us into freedom and we thank you for that we pray together as brothers and sisters in jesus name amen Thank you.